Well, isn't it great that today we get to read the story of Cain and Abel on Mother's Day? (laughs) Uh, I think it's pretty perfect, if you ask me. Uh, My mom repeatedly told me to not kill my brother, and so it just just feels right, Uh, repeatedly. Uh, In fact, my grandfather's favorite story to tell of me when he was alive was one time when I was five years old, my brother and I uh, were staying the weekend at our grandparents' house. Tyler, my older brother, who's two years older than me, uh, he fell asleep on the couch in the living room. Um, Now, now he was out. Um, This was one of those, uh, I played too hard and I just crashed suddenly in the middle of the room moments, right? So he is out, and, and I, being who I am at that age, saw this great opportunity before me. Hurt my brother without retaliation? (laughs) This is great. And so as my grandfather tells it, because I don't remember the story, uh, he watches me going into the room, tiptoeing to Tyler. And my grandfather thought I was going to pull a blanket up on him. Maybe maybe tuck him in. Maybe give him a little kiss on the forehead. (laughs) Is that what brothers do? (laughs) No. (laughs) I balled up my fist and I cocked it back and I pop him in the mouth. Like, <laughs> like, who does that? Like, personally, I don't remember this, but I, I'm certain that my brother deserved it. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have done it, right? Like, <laughs> I can't believe I did that. Uh, just punching people in their sleep. Uh, no wonder my parents were worried about me, and maybe still are. Um, but, you know, happy Mother's Day. Today, my goal is to give you the gift that at least my kids don't punch each other in their sleep. Uh, or worse, as we see today, at least my kids don't murder one another. All right, so we're setting the bar high, Uh, and yes, I know, I'm making light of it, Um, but let's bring it back. Today, we're going to talk about three very serious things. We're going to talk about sin, death, and justice. Sin, death, and justice in the story of Cain and Abel. Now, well, before we we get to the sin here, I want us to look at at what precipitated all of this. If you look at verse 1, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Do you see how that works? This, this knowing, this new, uh, is, is this intimate act. It's not just, I know something about her. It's, it's knowing her on another level. It's intimate. Uh, and then they conceived and bore Cain. Now, names were, were huge back in the day. Names were, were tied to their nature. We, we gave Jordan his middle name, Asher, because it means laughter, and he was always laughing, and still is today. Um, and, and I was given the name Slim, because, okay, all right, it's, it's ironic, all right, so just back up, okay, I'll, I'll embrace it, <laughs> but names describe you. Eve's name means life, and she gives life. A name was given to you because they discerned something about you. Now, Cain's uh, name meant productive, fruitful, successful, uh, that, that, that sounds like a firstborn name to me. But, but more than that, this is the first birth in the history of the world. We, we think of Cain and we think the first murder. But before that, he was the first sign of life after Adam and Eve. The first sign of hope that God wouldn't wipe us out. And so he was to be productive and fruitful and successful. And at his birth, Eve says with this great pride in verse 1, I have created a man with the help of the Lord. Um, <laughs> But Abel, what does Eve say? She says nothing, and his name means worthless. Jeez, Mom, <laughs> naming your kid worthless? Nobody likes that. Like, <laughs> Literally, his name means comes and goes like breath. And as shocking as those names were, that's who these kids were. 
when we hear this story, there's this temptation to think, Abel, good boy, Cain, drunk, riding around in a pickup truck, throwing beer bottles at, and going cow tipping, right? That's not the case. Cain wasn't evil, at least in his mother's and parents' eyes. Cain was successful. He was the winner. He was the most likely to be president. He had everything going for him. Abel was a rancher, and Cain was a farmer. Both are very good professions, and both go to worship Yahweh. Notice this. They both go to worship God, and both come with something in their hand. Now, a lot of negative things have been said about Cain. You know, he's typified as this bad guy, but Cain knew that worship was about sacrifice and giving. He knew he couldn't come to the Lord with, with nothing in his hand. And I think our problem today in our, in our culture is many think worship is about consuming and not giving. Uh, we come and we think, well, will the worship be on point today? Will the sound quality be good? How many bad jokes do I have to sit through? Um, was there a parking spot where I wanted it? Do I, are we in person or not? <laughs> was the website clear? You know, we're consumers, and, and America has made us this way. Even when it, when it comes to worship, we consume. Is it primarily about us, or is it about him? The Old Testament, New Testament believers would never have come to worship empty-handed. They came to meet Yahweh. Now, I've heard a lot of people say when it comes to giving to God in his church, they would say like, things like, you know, why should I give 10% of my money? But is it your money? And so we say, well, why do I give God 10%? And God's thinking, why do I give you 90%? <laughs> like, I say all this, not to harp on tithes and offerings, but I want us to humanize Cain just a little bit. He comes to worship, and he actually comes with something in his hand. But the problem arises in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, and the Lord has regard for Abel and his offering. And verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, what does that mean? Abel brought the firstborn and best part of his flock, and Cain just dropped in like a few seeds? I mean, lots of folks think that there was a difference in the substance of Cain's offering because he brought grain versus a blood offering, but nothing in this, te this text suggests that. God accepts grain offerings that throughout the Old Testament as well, and so I don't think it's that. But I would say perhaps the silence is the message itself. As outside viewers, we're, we're unable to detect any difference between these two brothers and their offerings. Just as today, it's almost impossible to detect any difference between someone coming to worship and someone just going through the motions. I mean, how hard is it to tell if someone's actually worshiping or faking it? And so perhaps the fault is in an internal one, an attitude that is known only to God, which we see later is precisely what the New Testament's interpretation is of this event. Cain doesn't really worship God. He's just going through the motions. Oh, now we can relate, right? Now we, we see Cain and his sin a little bit clearer. He's mumbling through songs. He says, amen. You know, he took communion, but he's not truly worshiping. He's faking it. And there was, there was nothing wrong with what he brought in his hand. The same thing is true now. Like when you guys give, if, it, it's pure freedom, how you worship, whether through checks or online or through Venmo. It, that's, that's not what's the matter. It's not what they bring in their hands, but it's what they bring in their hearts. And so Cain's heart is empty. And the Lord can tell when we come with empty hearts. And so he shows regard to Abel. 
in verse 5, so Cain was very angry. It's almost homicidal angry. And his face fell. He was depressed. Why did Cain go ballistic? Remember the backstory. Cain was a somebody. Abel was a nobody. And when God shows love to Abel, the nobody, first comes envy. Cain should have been regarded and Abel disregarded. Cain believed his own name. He believed he was great because he was better than Abel. Like, who am I if I'm not better than my brother? I mean, do you see his world crashing right before his eyes? And so when God showed affection on Abel, Cain thought, I have to eliminate Abel. And again, as we said last week, sin makes you do stupid things. Does it make sense to murder your brother to eliminate him so that God will show you more affection? I mean, if you think about it, it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. You think murder is going to bring you closer to God? But sin isn't always logical, right? He has eliminated Abel, but what will he do with God? Many times our anger isn't actually at the person with whom we're angry, but with the God and the situation we're in. And we lash out at the people, and we are, And so I ask, are we angry with them, or are we angry with God? It's a good question for us. And so we can trace the sin back here. Cain didn't just set out to murder when he was born. It started with envy. I want what you have. I want to be happy like you. I want to be loved like you. I want affection like you. Like you can just see the sin is growing in him like a cancer. But sin is always, always, always bringing death with it. What we see is that sin creates a culture of death. Everyone ever want to say culture of death? Culture of death, great. (laughs) What I mean is sin isn't just something we do. Sin is a power that is unleashed. It unleashes death that we think we can just play with. I mean, how many of you would go into a cemetery with a Ouija board at midnight on Halloween? Not many, I would think. It doesn't seem smart to try to contact the spirits or the demons like that. And yet we treat sin like this can of Pringles that we can just pop open and just get a chip out and then close the lid. It's just one chip. But God tells Cain in verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The depiction of sin is as a demon or a vicious animal lying in wait to unleash death on the world. And so if you're walking in a jungle and you walk past a jaguar who's lying in wait, it's too late. You're dead. And that's what sin does. It crouches. It hides. It becomes too strong for us. Because sin is always crouching down. It's, it's sin is always presenting itself as, to you as a virtue. It's trying to hide itself. I'm not a workaholic. I'm just productive. Yes, I probably shouldn't nurse that grudge, but it's not all that bad. Do you know what they did to me? Of course, I deserve this or they deserve that. Sin is always trying to stay hidden, trying to stay off your radar. It's crouching, but its desire is to have you to own you. It's a destructive force that sinks its teeth into you. In the earliest stages of pride and greed and lust, it feels like a Pringles can. But soon that addiction sets in, and this culture of death just spreads out of it. For Abel, spreading from envy to hate to murder. In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, 
Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Now, we're not told how, but just like Abel's name, he came and went quickly. And then in verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? I mean, do you notice the similarities to last week's passage and Adam and Eve's sin? God comes to them in the, in the wind of the storm and says, where are you? And Cain sins and God says, where's Abel? I mean, does God not know? No, again, as we said last week, God's questions were designed to elicit confessions, not information. He knew perfectly well what Cain had done. And just like Adam and Eve, Cain responds in verse 9 defensively, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to be responsible for him? I mean, do you see how defensive he is here? He's like, he's a free man. Who knows where he is, God? I mean, don't you see what's happening? The culture of death is spreading It didn't start with Cain, but with Adam and Eve. And Cain is replaying his parents' techniques as a response to sin. This is why we say that hurt people hurt people. We're not excusing Cain's sin, but what I want us to see is that Cain is not just a villain. He's a tragedy. He's inherited the venom from his parents. It doesn't make it less evil or wrong, but many times if we just look at someone's story, we are realizing They're saying hurtful things that their parents said to them. They're ugly because someone has been ugly to them. It doesn't excuse their sin, not at all, but it helps us trace everyone's sin back to their humanity. It helps us keep us from demonizing people. And why is that helpful? Why is it helpful to uncover why someone did what they did? Why is it helpful to see that the seed of every sin that's out there resides right in here in our own hearts? Because it's helpful to you to say, there but by the grace of God go I. I may not have murdered, but I have envy that is leading to hatred or apathy towards someone. You can identify if, if I had those circumstances, I might have been tempted to do the same thing. This is the culture of death that didn't stop with Cain. It is spreading even to today. Sin is this multi-generational aspect. Some of you can see that in your own family. Grandparents' sins are still affecting your family. And it's no different here. Cain ends up leaving. He's cursed in verse 12. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. So more curses ecologically goes on. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. But the effects of sin are never just on you. The Pringles lid has popped open, and it now goes from Adam to Cain to Enoch all the way to this guy, Lamech, who was introduced to us with having two wives, And two things that I'll say at this point is, one, in biblical narrative and stories, it's incredibly selective and sometimes sparse. And so a lot is going on that they just don't tell you. I mean, you ever wonder, like, where did all these people come from? Okay, I heard about Adam, I heard about Eve, and then Cain, but where did Cain get his wife? Is that his sister? Uh, Is this Arkansas? (laughs) Awkwardly, yes. Um, But all I'll say is just at this point in Genesis 4, the writer is only telling us what he wants to teach us. He's not telling us everything, 
There's a lot that happens in the world that we're just not told. I know it's hard to believe in this Twitter age. Uh, and so if the information isn't there, it's because it wasn't to, to help make the author's point. Second, some things in the Bible are descriptive and some are prescriptive. They're, some are descriptive. They're just telling us what, what's happened. Uh, and some are prescriptive. They're telling us what we should do, what's okay. And so descriptive, prescriptive. This, this is descriptive. Polygamy, having two spouses, is never condoned in Scripture. Genesis 4 is just describing Lamech. In fact, Lamech is, is the depiction of death spreading and spreading and sin getting into the world. And so it's becoming worse and worse and worse. Lamech doesn't fall into temptation. Lamech is the picture of sin gone unchecked. He's not someone you want to follow. This is the line of Cain. That's what, that's what it, we're, we're describing and depicting here. Things look pretty bleak, and things do look pretty bleak. And so where's the justice? Where's the hope? Well, I'm glad you asked. The main thing, I, what I want us to see today is the contrasting responses between God on Cain and Lamech and literally anyone else. Cain just murdered his brother. Eve probably said at that moment, you were the chosen one, <laughs> right? After he does this horrible, horrible act, what does scripture say? Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I mean, what an image. His brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And what is that cry? It's a cry for justice. Cry is that desperate cry of men without food, of someone expecting to die. It's the cry of the oppressed. It's the scream of help of a woman being raped. It is the plea to God for the victims of injustice. Help! Anyone! Do something! Hear us out! Cain's blood is crying out. Over the last couple of years, the blood of men and women have been crying out. From Trayvon Martin to George Floyd to too many hashtags. And yet so many people describe this last year as just cultural chaos. Why? when it's a reckoning of holding people accountable for their actions. Their blood is crying out justice. And yet, for some reason, God lets Cain live. He sends him on his way. His curse is that he'll be a wanderer. He'll be a nomad. But then he does find a wife, and he does settle down. He has kids. He builds a city, the first city in the Bible, in the world. His family invents music. I mean, what? God's response to sin is shocking. As far as we know, Cain never repents, and God doesn't strike Cain down. And yet Cain doesn't even think he deserves the punishment that he gets. In verse 13, Cain says the punishment is too great. He's afraid that the rest of the world, I'm guessing his brothers and sisters, would then come for his blood. But then God says, I will put a mark on you, the mark of Cain. Now, some heretics believed that God gave Cain darker skin here. And then they said it was a sign to justify black inferiority and anyone with the mark of Cain uh, or black is, is eternally cursed. Nope, uh, that's evil, that's wrong. That the mark of Cain was a mark of protection, so it's the opposite of what we're thinking here. God says, I will protect you. Um, some think this, this mark is a, a face tattoo. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe his hair is on fire. Um, one commentator, actually, when I read this week, said that maybe he got a dog, a scary dog to help protect him from anyone. So clearly, no one knows what the mark of Cain is. 
But the radical thing that this passage tells us that Genesis 4, 4 is showing us is this thing called common grace. Say common grace. God gives grace even to those who don't deserve it and those who don't repent. Now, it's not saving grace. He doesn't just kill them right then, nor does he let them be as bad as they could be. Common grace is this wonderful thing. It's another version of the Imago Dei. It means we can learn from anyone, whether they're Christian or not. Unbelievers built the first city in the, in, in, in the world. They invented music. Like, do we get that? We can enjoy music because some atheists created it. It's okay to appreciate what the world has. The church can actually learn from the academy. It's, it's not some evil empire. Common grace is wild. Like, but contrast that. God's grace and God's attitude to Cain, to Lamech's response to being sinned against. What's, what, what's the first human song in the Bible? It's in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. <laughs> maybe it sounds like this. You wives of Lamech. <laughs> this is already a bad song. Apparently he's like a caveman or maybe Bane. Uh, listen to what I have to say. <laughs> I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. A young man could literally be a boy for just brushing upside him, giving him a paper cut. Verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Like, <laughs> Lamech is a complete psychopath. Already the world has psychopaths and crazy dudes who have either killed or will kill children, is what he's saying. Like, he's, he's out of control. He's bloodthirsty. If someone gives him a paper cut, he's killing them. And so what is right? What is just? What is a right response to blood crying out? is an important question. Do we, give, do we give grace or do we give justice? Philando Castile didn't get justice. The officer that shot him was permitted to go free, and yet his blood cries out. Those who've been abused in churches or experienced traumas, and the church covers it up, what do we do? Do we choose grace or justice? I want to argue that you should always, always choose justice and grace that you don't have to choose between the two. I think as Christians, we can see it's clear that God is on the side of justice. Deuteronomy 10, 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Proverbs 16, 11, Honest scales and balances belong to the Lord. God wants to balance scales of justice, of what's right. God will always choose right. He will always answer the blood that cries out. The culture of death has to be stopped, and he will stamp out sin. And so God does curse Cain, executes justice, and sends him out as a response to sin. But God shows common grace to Cain as well, and he begins his rescue plan to the rest of sinful humanity. Through Eve, through another child, and she names this new child Seth. And even though we cry for justice and we cry for grace too, we need both. Abel and Seth and all of God's children have a cry, not just for justice, but for grace as well. I, I need grace. Seth's name means placed or replaced for Abel. He takes his place. And from that line of Seth would one day come the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And in the book of Hebrews, there is this one line that just just wrecks me every single time. In Hebrews 12, 24, 
and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why? Abel's blood cries for justice. Kill, eye for an eye, avenge, which feels good to get behind, and we need justice, but it doesn't do anything for you and me, the violators of God's justice. But Jesus Christ's blood, like all innocent blood, is crying out justice. But his blood doesn't demand justice. His blood is justice. Jesus' blood is speaking a better word than Abel's because his blood is a demand, but it's demanding that you never condemn God's people ever again. Like, don't you see? This is radical news. God could never condemn us because it would be getting two payments for the same thing, meaning it would be unjust for God to condemn you. Like, feel the force of that. It would be unjust for God to demand that you pay for your sins. Like, we are not allowed to. Jesus already paid it. Woo, that is a word. Jesus' blood speaks the best word in the world. It's both grace and justice. And this justice demands no condemnation for you. Hallelujah. No condemnation. Like, can you imagine that? No condemnation. I need to hear that. I heard this earlier this week. Satan knows your name, but calls you by your sin. And God knows your sin, but calls you by your name. Oh, I got to say that again (laughs) for my own heart to hear it. Satan knows your name, but calls you by your sin. But God knows your sin, but calls you by your name. The same question that was asked last week is asked this week. Where are you? It's not that God doesn't know. He wants you to confess. And where does he find you this morning? As you come to worship this morning, what are you going to to bring in your hands to God? The first thing I would say is your sin. Give him your sin. His blood paid for that sin. Don't hold back like Cain did. Don't go through the motions And once you realize how deeply you need him, you won't ever hold back. Can you say, Lord, I truly need you? Do you see a little bit of Cain in yourself? Can you feel envy brewing and hatred brewing in you? Lord, I desperately need you to cover my sin and to help me fight these sins. Bring your sin, bring your worries, your life to him today, and let his blood cry out for you. Let's pray.